Let's turn to the Word of God and let's begin our study tonight in Ezekiel chapter 25. For 24 chapters, actually beginning in chapter 4, so 21 chapters up to chapter 24, the focus has been prophecies about the coming judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem. Hundreds, in fact thousands, are already in the captivity by the Kibar River in that refugee camp with Ezekiel. They have been suffering. They turned away from God. Now they're experiencing the judgment of God. Ezekiel assures them that more judgment is to come. The focus has all been on the judgments of God's chosen people, the Jews. The Jews are fond of a saying that says, Lord, if we're the chosen people, couldn't you choose someone else next time? Because of what they have suffered. So now God does choose someone else. And beginning in chapter 25 to chapter 32, the focus now is on the judgments of other nations, surrounding nations. Seven Gentile nations, uh, four of them will be mentioned in chapter 25 alone. And these are nations that circumvent, they surround the nation of Israel. You could start at about... Two o'clock and go all the way, if you were looking at the face of a clock, around to ten o'clock. And these are the nations that are around the nation of Judah, the nation of Israel. And they will be judged for how they treated the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Now often in Scripture you find a pattern. We saw it in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and now in Ezekiel that God will predict the coming judgments upon his own people and then, either at the same time, woven in with them or afterwards, predict judgment upon other nations besides his people. And that's for a very important reason. And the reason is that of contrast and thus comfort. There is a contrast in how God judges his people versus how God judges the other nations around his people. You see, so many of these other nations, God predicted the fall, the judgment, the destruction, the annihilation, but for his own people, the Lord predicts restoration and future fulfillment. So that, while the Jews were in captivity and they were wondering, what's going to happen to us? Is there a future? God will repeatedly predict, yes, there is a future. You will go back to your land, and my plan for you goes all the way into the future with the coming of Messiah and the reestablishment of the nation, while these other nations will be destroyed, annihilated, never heard of again in the way they once were. I read about an interesting plant it's nicknamed, I forget the scientific name, the nickname is the century plant because of its irregular flowerings. It, it blossoms every five to every 100 years so that there's long periods of time where it's dormant. You see no activity at all. You'd look at it and think, there's no life in it. It's not productive. And then 
Between five and a hundred years it will flower again. Those times of being dormant are as much a part of that plant's growth as its blossoming. And so the children of Israel in captivity for 70 years, lying dormant, God still has a plan. God will still enact that plan. Now, the theme of the judgment in chapter 25 and all the way through 32, the judgment is similar in every case. As I mentioned, they are all judged for their vindictive hatred of Israel. And the first on the list is the nation of Ammon. That is modern-day Jordan today, just east of the Jordan River, east of the Dead Sea. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, Hear the word of the Lord God. Now, there's a couple of phrases I just want to draw your attention to. It's worthwhile remembering them and noticing them when you come across them in the prophecy of Ezekiel. There are two often repeated phrases. The first one is found in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying. You're going to read that altogether 50 times in this book. The second phrase that you'll see coming up, you've already read it, it will crop up again and again and again, is this phrase, that they may know that I am the Lord. And both of those are important because the first phrase, the word of the Lord came to me, came to Ezekiel is a phrase that describes or at least touches on a personal relationship. The second phrase, that they may know that I am the Lord, is a phrase that speaks of an impersonal relationship. God is trying to convince them that he is God, but they're ignorant of that fact. Now, Ezekiel has a relationship with God. He's listening to God. He's walking with the Lord. The communication comes easy. God speaks. Ezekiel listens. Ezekiel obeys. But these other nations aren't sure, aren't convinced. They don't have a relationship with God. They need to know that Yahweh is God. And you'll see these phrases repeated. The second phrase comes 63 times in this book. Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites. Prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, against my sanctuary when it was profaned and against the land of Israel when it was desolate and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity. Indeed, therefore, I will deliver you as a possession to the men of the east, and they shall set their encampments against you and make their dwellings among you. They shall eat your fruit and shall drink your milk. They said, Aha! A cry of malicious joy. They were happy. They were excited. They were jubilant that God's people, the Jews, Judah, had fallen to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. When 586 rolled around and the temple was raised to the ground and the fire burned the sanctuary, they said, all right, or aha. They were excited because of that. So God heard that. And he says, I will deliver you as a possession to the men of the east. 
You know, to rejoice in someone else's misfortune is very akin to taking part in that. We're warned in the book of Proverbs. It says, He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker, and he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. There was a time when Ammon, the Ammonites, had made an alliance with Judah against Babylon, hoping to keep the Babylonians out, hoping that they wouldn't attack that part of the Middle East. It didn't work. Nebuchadnezzar came anyway and attacked. When they did, not only did these people, the Ammonites, say, aha, but they helped in the attack. They supported the attack. They sent troops to help with Nebuchadnezzar and his armies in 600 B.C. Now, Josephus tells us that five years after Jerusalem was destroyed, that Nebuchadnezzar then set his sights and turned against this nation that said, Aha! That was glad at Jerusalem's fall. And in the year 581 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar turned against them and subjugated, throwing them out. And the tribes around that area, the nomadic Bedouin tribes, settled in the cities of the Ammonites. Behold, verse 5, I will make Rabbah. Rabbah was the chief city. That's the capital city. In fact, Rabbah is modern-day Amman, Jordan. You can hear the similarity between Ammon, the Ammonites, and Amman, Jordan, the capital city, which was ancient Rabbah. I will make Rabbah a stable for camels and Ammon a resting place for flocks, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have fond memories of spending about a week or a couple weeks in Amman, Jordan, near to the ancient city of Rabbah, which is still lying in, in ruins. The Lord is at work there. There are several churches that are evangelical churches. They spread the gospel. And they made a tremendous impact when I visited the church uh, several years ago. And though this city of Rabbah is today ruins, and it's a place where Bedouins uh, herd sheep and camels, it's a resting place, as Ezekiel predicted, exactly as he predicted. At the same time, the Lord is still at work in that area. In fact, so much of that area has the Bedouin tribes that are all throughout the Transjordan and Arabia and even into Israel. And um, the Bedouins have an interesting disease they suffer from. It's quite common among them. Their camels give it to them. It's tuberculosis. And so often over a period of time you will see uh, these nomads, these Bedouins, needing to be treated because of the tuberculosis that has been passed on by their flocks of camels, and they have to be treated for months at a time. And uh, one of the places they go is just to the north of the ancient town of Rabah, and it's called Mafrach. And Mafrach has a hospital for chest diseases, a sanatorium. And the Bedouins will come in and they'll be received gladly by the Christian missionaries. They'll be given a bed. They'll spend weeks and months there. And they have on staff an Arab-speaking 
evangelist. Knowing that he's got them for a few months. (laughs) Knowing that they're a captive audience, they can't go anywhere. He'll just go to the bedside and talk to them about the Lord and share the gospel and how much God loves them. And because of that one hospital, I am told, they've been there for about 50 or so years now, that there is at least one believer in every Bedouin tribe in the Middle East. God is at work in Rabbah. God is still at work among the Ammonites. But again, look at that phrase that we contrast with verse 1. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came. That's that personal communication to Ezekiel. And now verse 5, that they may know that I am the Lord. There is a huge difference between knowing that he is the Lord and knowing the Lord. The Ammonites still have yet to know that Yahweh is the only God. God will convince them of that. But Ezekiel knows the Lord personally. He has a personal relationship with him. It was Jesus who said in his prayer to the Father in John 17, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you. That is eternal life, knowing God personally. Big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. We all know who the president is. We don't all know the president. I don't know the president. I've met him on two occasions, got to shake his hand, even signed one of my Bibles. I thought, that's great. But I doubt if I saw him today that he'd remember who I am. I'm convinced he wouldn't. I don't know him. I know what he looks like. I know about him. But I don't have a relationship with him. And so many people know about God. They'll talk about God. They'll mention his name. And Jesus said, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons, done mighty works in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Huge difference. Ezekiel knows God. These nations will be convinced that he is the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you clapped your hands, stamped your feet, and rejoiced in heart, with all your disdain for the land of Israel. Indeed, therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples. I will cause you to perish from the countries. I will destroy you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So that was the prophecy against the Ammonites. Now, we're going south. Just south of Ammon was this next nation, the Moabites. Now, just go back a little bit in your history, and you remember that both Ammon and Moab were descendants because of a union, an incestuous union between Lot and his two daughters, the youngest daughter and his oldest daughter. And one gave him the son Ammon and the other Moab. The Moabites and the Ammonites were under a curse. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 23, where God says, No Ammonite, no Moabite will enter my sanctuary up to the tenth generation, because while you were going through the wilderness, they didn't come out and give you bread and water. They hindered their coming into the promised land. And they had a prophet among them, Balaam. 
who they sent out to curse the children of Israel. So God puts them under the curse, and now God speaks his judgment to them. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir say, Look, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Therefore, behold, I will clear the territory of Moab, of cities, of the cities on its frontier, the glory of the country, Beth Jeshimot, Baal Meon Kiriataim. To the men of the east, I will give it as a possession together with the Ammonites, that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations. They said, look, Israel's just like all the other nations. Now, you'll remember that at one time, this is exactly what Israel wanted. They wanted a king. And why did they want a king? They said that we can be just like all of the other nations around us. They have a monarchy. We want a monarchy. We're tired of just trusting in the Lord and being led by the prophet or the priest. We want a king like all of the other nations. Well, they got their wish. Now they've become so much like all the other nations that there's no uniqueness about them, no distinction as being God's holy, only people. But these people that have noticed that, notice they have become vulnerable like other nations. They're noticing that, and in noticing it, they're rejoicing. They're also vindictive. So he says, to the men of the east, I will give it as a possession. That's the Babylonians, together with the Ammonites, that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations, and I will execute judgments upon Moab, and they shall know that I am the Lord. There are two psalms that speak of Moab rather humorously. It is God who is speaking, and he says, Moab is my wash pot. You might say, Moab is my trash can, my spittoon. Moab is my wash pot. Nebuchadnezzar had to decide which nation he would attack first. He came from Babylon. He came to this area of the Middle East. He knew he wanted to conquer Jerusalem because the king that he had placed there, the vassal king, wasn't being obedient. He was rebelling and forming alliances with other peoples like Moab, like Ammon, like Egypt. So he had to make a decision who he would attack first. He decided, I'll attack Judah first. When he did, the Moabites, again, like the Ammonites, sided with him and helped. But in 582, Nebuchadnezzar subjugated the Moabite nation and left it desolate. Now we have prophecies against Edom, verse 12 and onward. And you remember that Edom descended from uh, Jacob's older brother Esau, who sold his birthright. And the Edomites occupied the area south of the Dead Sea, all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba on the eastern side in that uh, desert area. Thus says the Lord God, because of what Edom did against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has greatly offended by avenging itself on them. There is a minor prophet, Obadiah, that has a single chapter book, a song, a doom song against the Edomites. And he cites the major sin of Edom as being pride. Here, Ezekiel cites the big problem as 
vengeance. And both were true. There was this prideful, arrogant, long-standing animosity that eventuated into a vengeance against these people of God. It says, and has greatly offended by avenging itself on them. The Edomites did a couple of things that God didn't like. Number one, when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Judah, and again, there were three successive attacks. On one of those attacks, the Edomites also fled into the land of Judah and helped Nebuchadnezzar in taking down God's people. The second thing they did is that when some of the people from Judah fled, left Jerusalem because they were being attacked, a lot of them fled over to the area of Moab, east of the Dead Sea and south. They were looking for a place of refuge. The Moabites wouldn't give them a place of refuge, wouldn't take them in. And it was very akin to the Jews after World War II when they were trying to find a a homeland and be assimilated when they were on their way to Israel. Nations wouldn't have them, wouldn't allow them in their borders. So the Lord says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom, cut off man and beast from it, and make it desolate from Teman, that's in central Edom, near the rock city of Petra. Dedan shall fall by the sword. Dedan is a tribe and a territory in the southern part of Edom. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel that they may do in Edom according to my anger and according to my fury, and they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord God. In the third century B.C., a group known as the Nabataeans, a desert tribe, invaded this land of Eden and settled it. And their headquarters became the area of Petra, that rock city of Petra that so many of you have visited, some of you on this last trip when we took the extension down there. They overtook the area. They settled it. But... You'll notice in verse 14 that Israel will be the rod of chastening against them. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel, that they may do in Edom according to my anger and according to my fury. Now, when did that happen? We know the Nabataeans came in. Well, between the Old and the New Testament, it happened. There was a revolt against the Syrians that had occupied the land known as the Maccabean Revolt. And one of the Maccabeans, by the name of John Hyrcanus, booted out the Edomites, displaced them, and assimilated that territory into Israel so that the Nabataeans who were living there, the Edomites, fled into Judah and um, became known as the Idumeans. That's the line that Herod the Great and the Herod family came from. And they ceased to be a nation. They ceased to be recognized as a separate nation after that. So according to prophecy, it was Israel between the Old and the New Testament when this happened. Now we have a prophecy against the Philistines. See, we're working our way clockwise around Israel, circumventing it with the nations around it. Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines dealt vengefully and took vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy because of the old Hatred or because of the perpetual hatred. 
The Philistines were an interesting group of people. We, we remember them from like the book of Judges and uh, uh, the monarchy of David when there was all of this fighting between Saul and David and even in the period of Judges while the Philistines were settling the western seaboard of Israel, west of Judah, a strip of about 25 miles long by 15 miles wide was occupied by the Philistines. Now, the Philistines, by the way, the word Palestine comes from the term Philistine. That's why I never like to refer to Israel as Palestine. You'll see some of the old books, old commentaries, old maps, talking about the land of Palestine. I don't like referring to it as the land of the Philistines. It's the covenant land that God gave to Israel, not the Philistines. Palestine comes from the term Ur Philistia, the land of the Philistines. And they did occupy it for a while, but they were, they were put out of business by David and then later by the Maccabeans, just completely destroyed altogether. Um, I lost my thought. Let's go on. Thus says the Lord, because the Philistines dealt vengefully and took vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy because of the old hatred. That's it. That old spiteful vengeance that had gone on a long time. They settled in five cities. Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, Gaza, and Ekron were the five principal cities of the Philistines that eventually David subdued them, and we don't hear much about them after that. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines. I will cut off the Carathites. Those are the people from Crete. By the way, that's where they started. They settled the Aegean Basin. They were seagoing peoples, and they spread throughout that part of the world and moved into the land of Israel. And destroy the remnant of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with furious rebukes, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. So we've covered several nations that go all around and surround, encompass the land of ancient Judah and Israel. And they share a common interest. They share a common thread. All of these neighbors hate the Jews. How would you like to have neighbors all around you, everyone on your block hates you? It'd be hard to go home, wouldn't it? You'd expect somebody to wave and your neighbor as you go by just <laughs> scowls and plots against you. And I got to say, not much has changed. Israel today is surrounded by neighbors, about a hundred million of them, who have a common thread and a common interest, and that is. Israel shouldn't belong in that land. It's an old hatred. It's an old and perpetual revenge. Years ago, I flew over to the country of Jordan. It was my first exposure to it. I did get in, but I almost didn't make it. At that time, Jordan did not have friendly relationships with Israel, even though they border each other. I got off the airplane... And uh, I showed them my passport. And I made a mistake. I carry two passports. One is for Arab countries and one is for Israel. I brought my Israeli stamped passport. It, has, it had Israel stamped 
17 different times on that passport. And when I went up to security and they looked at my passport, they looked at me, they looked at my passport, they turned the pages, they saw all the stamps, they closed it, handed it to me and said, next plane, you're on it. you got to get out of the country. We have no relationship with the country of Israel. You are not welcome. They said, you're going to have to go over to Cyprus, go to an embassy there and get the right papers and then come back. But we don't want anything that says Israel on it. You can't go in our country. Well, I didn't know what I was going to do, and I was ready to get on the airplane and join my friends. I had gone there with Franklin Graham and Dennis Agajanian, which was an interesting thing in and of itself, to be in an (laughs) Arab country with a guy with a big cowboy hat. (laughs) And Dennis did something very interesting. He grabbed me by the arm in front of this official, and he said, Officer, I'm an officer, and I will apprehend this man take him under my custody, and I'll take him to the embassy tomorrow and make sure he gets the proper documentation. And he reaches into his wallet and opens up his police badge. It's a chaplain badge (laughs) with a big cross on it (laughs) from the San Clemente Police Department. And he shows it to this Arab official in Jordan. I'm looking at him like, Dennis, are you nuts? This isn't going to work. It says chaplain on it. And the guy bought it. He looked at Dennis, you know, he's so tall, and he looked at that big gold badge, and he said, yes, sir. And they let me in the country. I went to the embassy the next day, and I made it through. Listen, I got in the cab, and I said, thank you, Lord. And Dennis said, what are you thanking the Lord for? I got you in. (laughs) I moved in case lightning was coming down. Now, beginning in chapter 26 for the next three chapters, we won't cover them all tonight. Chapter 26, 27, and 28 is a prophecy against the destruction of the city of Tyre, one of the most fascinating prophecies in all of the Bible. Tyre was a commercial seacoast city, and it was the capital of the Phoenician Empire. The Phoenicians were entrepreneurial. They had built a huge merchant marine. Their sea trade spanned all the way not only from Tyre, the coast of Lebanon today, but all the way over to Cyprus and Crete and all the way into England. They visited Britannia, which they called the land of tin. That's what it means. Uh, They established Tarshish on the coast of Spain. So they were explorers. And um, it was a very, very old city. You'll remember that Hiram, who was at one time the king of Tyre, was David's friend and supplied to his son Solomon some of the materials necessary for building the temple in Jerusalem. It came to pass in the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha! She is broken, who was the gateway of the peoples. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. The city of Tyre was a commercial city, very wealthy, in a beautiful spot. 
and really was the commercial capital of the ancient world. It did rival and was in competition with Jerusalem. Jerusalem controlled the land trade routes. Tyre controlled the sea routes. And there was a fierce competition for a long time between them. Now that Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians, those in Tyre would go, Aha! Good! Great! Now all of that business, all of that revenue, all of those shekels will be ours. They looked forward to the fall of Jerusalem because it meant more money for them. They rejoiced they would get all the business. History and Scripture tell us that the Tyrians, the inhabitants of Tyre, sold the Jews into slavery to the Greeks. So now God prophesies their judgment because of that attitude. Tyre is a a picture and a warning, really, to anyone who would worship the bottom line, mammon, materialism, to make it all about money. What does it profit, Jesus said, if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul in the process? They were after the money. There's a great scripture in Proverbs 23, one that some of us can relate to, especially around tax time. It says, Do not overwork to be rich. Why do you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches will certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. A warning to those who, like Tyre, would live completely for the amassing of material wealth. So much so that when competitors fall, it's like, great, now I get more. Back in 1975, six armed gunmen held up a bank in London. It took just about everything in the vault. Over $7 million was taken on that day. One woman had her jewelry stored in that bank vault in a box. It was appraised at over $500,000. When she heard the news that it was stolen, she became so upset that she wailed and she was heard as saying, my whole life was in that box. How tragic. How sad to have your whole life wrapped up in a box of jewels. For Tyre, everything was wrapped up in its commercialism. They would be destroyed and they would be without. They would lose. Verse 3, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause, now notice this, many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. It's a picture, is it not, of invading armies like waves that would come one set after another. After this prophecy was written, Tyre was invaded five different times. Just like sets of the sea coming in and lopping up upon the shores. Nebuchadnezzar was one who besieged the city. Nebuchadnezzar spent 18 years surrounding, besieging, and attacking the city of Tyre before it fell. 
18 years. Now, we complain after a couple of years being in Iraq. He spent 18 years, and that was his method. He would stay in an area until that area fell or he was defeated. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre. At that time, at the time that Nebuchadnezzar attacked the city of Tyre, Tyre was located on the coast. It had a seawall. If you've ever been to northern Israel, there's a town called Akko. And Akko has a seawall very much like that ancient city of Tyre that protected it against invasions by the sea. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, says the Lord, it shall become plunder for the nations. Now these towers were obelisks. They had that unusual shape, tapered shape. It's the uh, historian Herodotus who tells us about these magnificent towers. He says one was made out of emerald, one was made out of gold. They shone brilliantly at night. They were in the Temple of Hercules, their entire, and these are the very towers, part of their worship system, that would fall when Nebuchadnezzar would take the city. Also her daughter villages, which are in the field, shall be slain by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the king of kings. He's given that title because he forced other kings to submit to him. With horses, with chariots, with horsemen, and an army with many people. Now notice that it says Nebuchadnezzar would come from the north, which is unusual because he was directly to the southeast the direct route would be to come across the desert lands, the Arabian desert, and right over into this area. But he didn't do that. What he did, as predicted by the prophet, is follow the Euphrates River Valley up as it went to the north, which gave his troops plenty of water, plenty of shade, and came all the way up, and then from the north attacked this area of Tyre. Now notice he mentions Nebuchadnezzar in verse 7. It's the first of four direct references to Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to read more about Nebuchadnezzar in this book and especially in the next book. And I love studying about him because he thought he was so mighty, so powerful. In fact, his name, Nebuchadnezzar, is a uh, a title of worship to his god Nabu in Babylon, asking his god Nabu to protect his territory, his provinces, and his children. It was a title of trusting in a foreign god. But he's going to learn that though he is so powerful, he's just a pawn on God's chessboard. That God is moving him according to the prophecies of Ezekiel, according to the prophecies of Jeremiah. And what's really great is when we get to Daniel, he's going to make a confession. He's going to say, for the Lord God or the Most High reigns, rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whoever he wants. He's going to learn that God is sovereign. And it's God who gives nations to these kings. He will slay with the sword your daughter, villages in the fields. He will heap up a siege mound against you, build a 
wall against you and raise up a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls. With his axes, he will break down your towers. Because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons and the chariots. When he enters your gates as men enter a city that has been breached. Some have read that verse and have supposed that this is simply hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to make a point. You know, dust covering everything. But Charles Feinberg reminds us it's not at all hyperbole that he, Nebuchadnezzar, had such an enormous army, so many thousands of men and chariots, that the thud of the hoofs of the horses and the rolling of the wheels of the chariots on that dry ground kicked up the dust and literally covered the city in their attack with dust. And that low vibration of the hum of the chariots was heard and shook the walls. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. Now let's get a just a quick thumbnail sketch of the history of the fall of this place. As I mentioned five times, the city was attacked. Nebuchadnezzar was the first. At that time, Tyre lay on the coast, on the beach, with a seawall jetting out. When it was destroyed, the people of Tyre that fled didn't bother to rebuild their old city. They left it on the coast, and they moved to a rocky island about 1,200 yards out to sea, and they built another city also called the city of Tyre. It was about a 142-acre complex with a strong wall around it. They managed to remain safe on that rock island of Tyre for about 250 years. At that time, Philip of Macedon, who had a young boy that he thought would never amount to much, his name was Alexander, was growing up over in Greece, in Macedonia. And Philip, Alexander's dad, was so worried about young Alexander because he thought he's never going to amount to much. He's just a bookworm. He's a visionary. He won't really do much. He decided the boy needed a good schooling. So he sent him to a private tutor by the name of Aristotle, who taught him in the wisdom of the Greeks. And again, he was sort of a a soft child, uh, a bookworm, a student, a scholar. But when he was 19 years a- of, of age, his father, Philip, died. He was murdered. This emboldened Alexander to take up his father's cause. He amassed an army, marshaled an army, and moved from west where he was and went all the way into Medo-Persia, conquering and subduing and butchering many people. He came to Tyre and simply asked for supplies, a little bit of help. They refused his help. So what does any good despot do when somebody refuses to give him a helping hand? Just destroy them. 
The problem was is that they weren't located on the coast anymore. They were out to sea on that rocky island 1,200 yards from the coast. So Alexander the Great, according to verse 12, took all of the stones left after it was abandoned after the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, the stones, the timbers, the soil, and piled it into the sea and made a causeway, a jetty. And the armies could march on it and take that place And it was destroyed. Thus, they will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. I will put an end to the sound of your songs. The sound of your harps shall be heard no more. Tyre was famous for its musicians and its musical compositions. I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets. You shall never be rebuilt, for I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord God. About a hundred years ago, um, a traveler by the name of Thompson, who wrote a very famous book on the area called The Land and the Book, traveled to this area of Tyre. And he looked at it, and he described the island as simply a, a, a shaved rock, uneven, very jagged in some places. And in his day, 100 years ago, he noticed that all they were doing is using it to spread out nets, to dry the nets from the fishermen that were in that area. Now, here was this one-time great commercial center for the Mediterranean world. And now, as predicted, a nondescript village and then an abandoned island, never rebuilt. Still, the ruins bear eloquent testimony to the veracity and the power of prophecy in the Word of God. Just how impressive is prophecy? Very, very impressive. So many times God predicted details about the future. For instance, He said that Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would be leveled. hundred years before Jerusalem was destroyed. And at the time it was written, Jerusalem was strong and the temple was the centerpiece for Judea. Also, the prophets, Isaiah, predicted that Cyrus would help the Jews rebuild their temple, would release them from the captivity. And it happened. So many times that when you look at it, you marvel at it. And you think, if God made those kind of predictions and they came true, that means... Everything God says will come true. I can bank on it. I can trust it. It was Dr. A. Casey Morrison that gave this interesting example. He's from the New York Academy of Sciences. He said, if I took ten pennies and I marked them one to ten, put them in my pocket, and I made a prediction, I'm not going to look. I'm just going to simply reach into my pocket And my first try, I will pull out penny marked number one. My odds of doing so, he said, are one in ten. That's pretty obvious. But now it becomes, as I go along in this little experiment, increasingly and exponentially more difficult. So if I say, I'm going to reach in my pocket without looking and pull out penny marked number two, my odds will be one in a hundred that I can do that. 
Now he says, if I pull it off and consecutively pull out 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, my odds are 1 in 10 billion that I could pull that off. And even if I could pull it off, he said to his audience, you'd say, hey, man, you, you did something. You fudged something. The game is fixed because it's just so impossible. That's the point of prophecy. The game is fixed. God knows the end from the beginning and declares it. And that becomes his calling card in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, what other God can do this? What other God besides me, since there is no other God, can speak the end from the beginning and call those things that are not as though they were? Perfect track record. Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Will the coastlands not shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded cry, when slaughter is made in the midst of you? Then all the princes of the sea will come down from their thrones, lay aside their robes, and take off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground, tremble every moment, and be astonished at you. They will take up a lamentation for you and say to you, How you have pierced, O one inhabited by seafaring men, O renowned city who is strong at sea, she and her inhabitants who caused their terror to be in all of her inhabitants. The fall of Tyre would be so monumental that all of these other nations would be affected by it. Keep in mind, Tyre developed the trade with the Aegean Sea peoples, England, uh, ancient Spain called Tarshish, founded that city, so developed its own trade route. So the fall of Tyre would cause a lamentation and an upset commercially, economically, with nations, inhabitants of peoples all around. Now the coastlands tremble in the day of your fall. Yes, the coastlands by the sea are troubled at your departure. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a desolate city like cities that are not inhabited, when I Bring the deep upon you and great waters cover you. Then I will bring you down with those who descend into the pit, literally the earth below, that is the grave, those who have been long dead, to the people of old, and I will make you dwell in the lowest part of the earth, in places desolate from antiquity with those who go down to the pit, so that you may never be inhabited, and I shall establish glory in the land of the living." I will make you a terror, and you shall be no more. Though you are sought for, you will never be found again, says the Lord. So the city of Tyre fell. 573 B.C. after 18-year siege by Nebuchadnezzar. 332 B.C. by uh, Alexander the Great, destroying that rock island. And then again in the 1200s by uh, another group, the uh, Sarsatians came and completely annihilated those who were left, uh, those tribes that had still settled around that area. Now, chapter 27, we continue with this, and it's a, it's a song. It's a dirge. It's a lamentation. You might say God is saying, Ezekiel, here, sing this song at the funeral. For Tyre. It is set in a poetic 
kind of a writing as opposed to the prose that was in the previous two chapters. Now, if you are a sailor or you spend much time at sea, you're going to get into this chapter because Tyre is pictured as this magnificent ship that is uh, filled with people that Tyre traded with, merchants from around the world, and uh, eventually gets shipwrecked. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, Now, son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyre and say to Tyre, You who are situated at the entrance of the sea, merchant of peoples on many coastlands, thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Now, remember that statement. You're going to see it again next week in chapter 28. When somebody else says that, the real power behind this commercialism and pageantry, pagan pageantry entire, Satan himself. So notice that and remember that. You have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the midst of the seas. Your builders have perfected your beauty. They made all your planks of fir trees from Sinir. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make you a mast. Sinir is the Amorite term for Mount Hermon. Of oaks from Bashan, that beautiful area, that green verdant area east of the Sea of Galilee. Oaks from Bashan, they made your oars. The company of Asherites have inlaid your planks with ivory from the coast of Cyprus. Remember, it was Tyre that colonized Cyprus and was trading with it, so it got the best materials. This people said, I am perfect in beauty. Wrong statement. God hates pride. Nebuchadnezzar will find out. When he walks around the grounds and he says, Is this not the great Babylon which I have built? You know what happened next. If you don't, hang on till we get to Daniel. A fascinating story. God hates pride. And in Proverbs it says there are six things that God hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. First on the list, a proud look. So the Bible says that whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, the way down is the way up, and the way up is the way down. It's reverse. You're prideful, you'll get put down. You're humble, God will lift you up in due time. There's no better example of this than looking at Satan, who said, I am perfect in beauty, who said, I am not satisfied with this position that I occupy. I will ascend above the stars of God. I will set my throne on the sides of the congregation of the north. I will be like the Most High. God said, you'll be brought down to the pit. So Satan says, I'm going up, up, up in the world. God says, oh, buddy, you're going down, down, down. You contrast that ideology with the ideology of our Lord Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. 
and came in the form of a man in the appearance of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. See, Jesus said, Father, I will humble myself. I will serve and obey your will. I'll go down. And the Father said, then I'll bring you up. So the way down is the way up. The way up is the way down. You are never more like Jesus than when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God to serve rather than to be served. You're never more like the devil than when you maintain that adamant stature of arrogance, pride, and refuse to serve. Tyre said, I'm perfect in beauty. Ooh, you're going down now. Fine, verse 7, fine embroidered linen from Egypt was what you spread for your sale. Blue and purple from the coast of Elisha was what covered you. This is a city on the eastern side of uh, the island of Cyprus. Inhabitants of Sidon, that's another coastal town about 25 miles north, and Arvad, another city on the coast just north of Sidon. These inhabitants were your oarsmen, your wise men, O Tyre, were in you. They became your pilots. Tyre became prideful. What a beautiful situation. They had the best weather in that part of the world, right on the coast, right on the Mediterranean. Very wealthy, very opulent. Now, it is a temptation to start trusting in your situation, your locale. And we live in a county, we live in an area that bears many similarities to the ancient city of Tyre. Beautiful situation, beautiful weather, very wealthy. And we could say, I'm perfect in beauty. It was shopping Mecca, by the way, ancient Tyre. It was like the best mall on earth. The elders of Gebal and its wise men were in you to cock your seams. All the ships of the sea and their oarsmen were in you to market your merchandise. So again, it's a picture of this beautiful ship. The city is likened into a, the uh, most outfitted ship you could think of that's about ready to have a shipwreck. Those from Persia, Lydia in Asia Minor, and Libya, that's North Africa, were in your army as men of war. They hung shield and helmet in you. They gave splendor to you. Men of Arva, that's that coastal town, with your army were on your walls all around. And the men of Gamad were in your towers. That's a nearby town to Tyre. They hung their shields on your walls all around. They made your beauty perfect. Tarshish, that's way over on the coast of Spain, founded and established by this culture, was your merchant because of your many luxury goods. They gave you silver, iron, tin, and lead for your goods. Javan, Tubal, and Meshach, all in Asia Minor, were your traders. They bartered human lives and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. Those from the house of Tagarma, that's over in eastern Asia Minor, modern Armenia, traded for your Wares with horses, steeds, and mules 
The men of Dedan were your traders. That's the island of Rhodes. Many isles were the market of your hand. They brought you ivory tusks and ebony as payment. Syria was your merchant because of the abundance of goods that you made. They gave you your wares, emeralds for your wares, emeralds, purple, embroidery, fine linen, corals, and rubies. Judah and the land of Israel were your traders. They traded for your merchandise, wheat of minneth, millet, honey, oil, and balm. Damascus was your merchant because of the abundance of goods that you made, because of your many luxury items, the wine of Helbon, this is a town north of Damascus, still to this day famous for its grapes and uh, production of, of wine. And with white wool, Dan and Javan paid for your wares, traversing back and forth. Wrought iron, cassia, and cane were among your merchandise. Dedan was your merchant in sackcloth for riding. That's a tribe, remember, in the southern part of Edom. Arabia and all of the princes of Kedar were your regular merchants. They traded with you in lambs, rams, and goats. These were the Bedouin tribes of the area that took of their flocks and traded with them. The merchants of Sheba, that's over in Yemen presently, and Ramah, southern Arabia, were your merchants. They traded for your wares the choicest spices of all kinds of precious stones and gold. Haran, Kane, Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Assyria, and Kilmad were your merchants. All of these are located in Mesopotamia over by Babylon, Medo-Persia area. These were your merchants in choice items, in purple cloths, in embroidered garments, in chests of multicolored apparel, in sturdy woven cords, which were in your marketplace. The ships of Tarshish were carriers of your merchandise. You were filled and very glorious in the midst of them. Your oarsmen brought you into many waters, but... It's not a good word when you're describing the wealth and the abundance of people that were on their side helping them. You had it made, but... The east wind broke you in the midst of the seas. They went down. They would be shipwrecked. The east wind was a fierce, tempestuous, almost hurricane-like wind in that part of the world, in the Mediterranean world. Some call it a nor'easter. Others call it, it's used in the Bible in Acts 27, a Euroclodon, this fierce wind that would toss huge ships around like they were little toys in a bathtub. They would be destroyed. God would send them a storm, and that would be the Babylonian army. They'd sink. Your riches, wares, and merchandise, your mariners and pilots, your caulkers and merchandisers, all your men of war who are in you, and the entire company which is in your midst will fall into the midst of the seas on the day of your Ruin. Again, Jesus said, what will it profit if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? You've got all of this wealth, but what good is it when the ship is going down? You're going to sink quicker because of the wealth. Years ago, there was a wrestler in Europe known as Yusuf the Terrible Turk. 
Yusuf the Terrible Turk was a 350-pound prize wrestler that won all of the European championships. He came to America, and he was going to wrestle our champion, Strangler Lewis, 290 pounds. Yusuf the Turk won the competition. The prize then was $5,000, of which he demanded it be paid to him in U.S. gold. He took the gold coins given to him, or the gold nuggets, and put them in a pouch, sort of a, a pack around his enormous frame, and he wore it on the boat. And he walked around with it in his pride. Look what I won. Look how powerful I am. And all was well until his ship, the SS Burgoyne, started having problems and it started sinking. He went overboard and though they sent out ships to save him, it was too late. The gold sunk him like lead and they didn't make it in time. Proverbs say that riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Yusuf, the terrible Turk, found out a terrible lesson. His riches do not profit in the day of wrath. The ship called Tyre was sinking and all of its wealth and all of its monuments, all of the peoples that had aligned with it wouldn't help, wouldn't profit. The common land will shake at the sound of the cry of your pilots. All who handle the oar, the mariners, all the pilots of the sea will come down from their ships and stand on the shore. They will make their voice heard because of you. They will cry bitterly and cast dust on their heads. They will roll about in ashes. They will shave themselves completely bald because of you, gird themselves with sackcloth and weep for you with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. Just as when somebody dies over in the Middle East and there's this outward display of emotion, they would have this emotion because they lost their commercial venture. In their wailing for you, they will take up a lamentation and lament for you. What city is like Tyre, destroyed in the midst of the sea? When your wares went out by sea, you satisfied many people. You enriched the kings of the earth with your many luxury goods and your merchandise. But you were broken by the seas in the depth of the waters. Your merchandise and the entire company will fall in your midst. All the inhabitants of the isles will be astonished at you. Their kings will be greatly afraid. Their countenance will be troubled. The merchants among the people will hiss at you. You will become a horror and be no more forever. Now, as we close tonight, there's some lingering lessons. We've touched on them. Let's review them and close with these thoughts. Number one, God is in charge. God is sovereign. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men, as Nebuchadnezzar himself will say, and gives it to whoever he will. And that should make us think, when we hear in all of these predictions that have been made and have been fulfilled literally, the fall of Tyre, the odds of, with all of the details given, the fall of Tyre. Peter Stoner in his book, Science Speaks, says the odds of that happening are one in 400 billion. Second thing, God hates pride. 
The way up is the way down. The way down is the way up. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And a final lesson. It seems pretty obvious, but it bears touching on. God said, whoever touches Israel touches the apple of my eye. You mess with God's covenant people, and God will mess with you. These people tried it. God judged them, all of these nations, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Philistia, and Phoenicia, Tyre, for the way they treated the Jewish people. Whoever touches you, God said, touches the apple of his eye. Egypt found that out. Babylon found that out. The Nazis found that out. Every nation who has gone against God's covenant people has in some way or another found that out. And what happens to all of these nations will eventually happen to us, to all mankind. All of us will die if the Lord doesn't come back soon, and He could come at any moment. But all of us will face the judgment. Either we'll stand in our own good works and be judged accordingly, or we'll stand in the finished work of Jesus Christ and bypass that kind of judgment. But we'll all stand before a holy God. It's appointed unto every man once to die. So in all of these scriptures, eternity should be paramount in our minds. Living our lives today with eternity in mind. Somebody once said that a man's life is comprised of 20 years where his mom asks him where he's going, 40 years where his wife asks him where he's been, and finally one hour when everybody at his funeral wonders where he's gone now. And that is the important issue, is it not? Living our life to glorify God is the most exciting way to live, to experience the fulfillment of His promises in our lives. And tonight you might be experiencing some hardship, some heartache. And you feel like Israel in captivity. You're in that dormant stage. The plant isn't flowering. But it's just as much a part of your growth and my growth is when you see the full blooms on the plant. God is at work. Trust Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in Your promises, and we rejoice in You, the One who has given us those promises. We as Your people not only recognize that You are the Lord, we know You as the Lord. This is eternal life that we know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Thank you for the relationship that we have with you through your Son, by which we, today, on this Father's Day, can say, Abba, Father. May we live a life that is pleasing to you.